Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set food in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the people of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Amen. Well, this is my last sermon in the 1 Timothy series, so it's a good chance for me. We've got one more next week with Robin, but it's a good chance for me to ask, how have you got on? How have you found the series? How have you found 1 Timothy? Or, if you've just come for the first time this week, what did you miss? What have we all been thinking about this term? Well, personally, I've been actually hugely encouraged by this term, by 1 Timothy. I think over the last couple of months, God's been reminding us of his amazing heart, his heart, his heartbeat for the salvation of all kinds of people. That's at the center of what he's doing, and it should be at the center of what a local church is doing. That's why it's a great thing we have people up here today saying in an interview that the Sunday teaching of God's word has been helping them think, actually, I'd like to pray for someone who doesn't know Jesus. I'm going to try and invite them, even if I feel a bit awkward or silly doing it. That's one reaction to 1 Timothy. What a great reminder that God wants to save all kinds of people. I think another possible reaction is this, and you'll see it at the top. There's there's an outline on the back of the service sheet. Um, I think one possible reaction is, at times, this book's felt a little bit bossy. Or maybe the preaching's felt a little bit bossy. Anyone thought that? I mean, no one's actually told me this personally. I, I, maybe you're being nice to the new guy. I haven't picked up complaints to me. But, but let's just be honest. At various points, this book, and so this preacher and Robin and the elders and the small group leaders, well, we've been telling you what to do and what not to do. Not just truths about Christianity, how great Jesus is, but how to behave as Christians, as the church. And some of those areas of life have been very personal. Just think about it. We've addressed how you dress, how you pray, how we live as men and as women, the requirements of those who are elders and deacons. And that's not just their public lives, their service, but their private lives. What goes on in their family, their conversations? Are they repenting of sin? We've talked about how you care for your relatives, your own relatives, We've talked about the needy in the church family and whether we look out for them. It's a book that's been sticking its nose in to real life, real relationships in church, all sorts of areas of behavior. Because again and again, we've been encouraged to show godliness. That is Christ-likeness. We don't just trust Jesus, he's amazing. 
We're to grow like him. His gospel doesn't just save us, it changes us as a church family. Saved by grace, changed by grace. But maybe one or two think, it all sounds a bit bossy. (laughs) Do this, don't do this. Behave this way, don't behave this way. Do we really need this many commands in church? Well, let me say, it is possible for preachers to be way too bossy, or bossy about the wrong things. Do you remember that, chapter 4? Last time I was here, just flick back on page 992, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. There were some teachers on the ground in Ephesus who were, who were being bossy about the wrong things. Verse 3, they forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be, thank, created to be received with thanksgiving. It is possible to be too bossy, to say, you must do this, you must do this, then you'll be in God's good books. And that was a problem on the ground. But notice, Paul's solution as he writes this whole book is not to say, Timothy, don't give commands out. Don't kind of urge people and exhort people and be bossy from the pulpit. Don't be like that at all. No, that's not what the the book's like. Rather, Paul's writing to Timothy saying, this is the right stuff to be bossy about. Those guys are focused on the wrong thing entirely. They're distracted from the real gospel and real godliness. And so, and again and again, and you see it in our passage, chapter 6, verse 2, the end of chapter 6, verse 2, again and again, Paul, the apostle, tells Timothy, the elder, teach and urge these things. Teach and urge, teach and urge, teach and urge, teach the gospel, urge godliness, again and again. So, What's going to be the areas this morning? Well, you'll see on the handout, we're going to delve into the workplace, verses 1 and 2. And then the rest of chapter 6 is going to start to address the wallet. We won't get far onto that. We'll save it mostly for next week. Um, If you felt like 1 Timothy was intrusive, (laughs) those may be two areas you didn't want the book to go to. There's an old kind of preacher's joke. Um, The last thing for a man to get converted is his wallet. Ever heard that? Um, I mean, that, I don't think that's theologically true, but, but there, is, there is a tendency sometimes for Christians to have one life in church and at the weekends and a quite different life in the bank account or a quite different life in the office or the school or wherever it is we're serving. Our Monday to Friday worlds can be easily a place where the gospel doesn't encroach. And Paul says to Timothy, don't allow that kind of double life, compartmentalized Christianity to continue in himself or in other people in the church. Teach and urge these things, this godliness, this kind of nitty-gritty of living out the Christian life. So let's dive into verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, the workplace. Now, these verses actually tie in with what we were seeing in chapter 5. It's kind of the last bit of chapter 5, really. Chapter 5 has been talking about honoring different people at different ages and stages. So in verses 1 and 2, it's different genders, different ages. Remember verses 3 to 16, it was about honoring true widows, those who are truly needy in our church family. In verses 17 to 25, it was honoring elders in the church family, the most influential, either for good or for bad. And now, um, here we are, honouring masters. So we're saying the word translated bondservants in verse 1, um, it's actually the same word as slaves. You can see that from the footnote if you want to. 
Um, but we need to be careful here, because this is not the kind of slavery we might think of, the kind of 19th century American slavery, or even the, the, the current people trafficking that happens in our modern world. Um, the Bible actually is, is totally against the enslavement and forced um, sale of people. You actually can find that out from 1 Timothy itself. We may not have noticed it, but verse 10 of chapter 1, 1 verse 10, has enslavers as one of the things in a list of stuff God does not like. Um, it's in a list of things that go against God's law and God's gospel. Enslavers, chapter 1 verse 10. God's against that. But this kind of slavery is more, it's a lot more like employment, as in these slaves were probably paid. Uh, they may have had a chance to buy their freedom over time. I mean, they didn't have the rights that we have um, in, in the office or whatever, um, but they are working for pay for a master. So I think the principle here to that particular cultural setting comes across to us, those of us who are employed. If you have a master, I think the principle here um, uh, applies. So what's the principle? Well, verse 1, honor your boss for God's sake. Honor, respect your master for God's sake. And we'll see, that goes for whether, you're a Christ, whether they are a Christian or not. So, if they're not a Christian, let's have a read of verse 1 and, and see how my behavior towards my master affects what they think of God. Verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. I think in a nutshell, that's a very revealing verse for the whole of 1 Timothy, actually. Maybe you've heard lots of talk about us as a church being the pillar and the buttress of God's truth. Maybe you're sick of that phrase, buttress of truth, buttress of truth. What does it actually mean? In the nitty-gritty, what does it mean? Well, here you go. Do you respect your boss? How do you treat your boss at work? That's part of being a pillar and buttress of God's truth. So even if the boss is quite a difficult person to respect for whatever reason, and there usually is a reason, we'll recognize that by regarding our masters as worthy of all honor, the name of God and the gospel will not be reviled. Now let me say, this is not to say, if there's a serious problem of mismanagement in your workplace, it's not to say you can never change job, it's not to say you, you can't give feedback or use the provisions that HR have arranged, and I'm aware that, in fact, I know there are one or two Christians here who are in impossible situations at the moment at work and, and probably do need to change. But even if you need to change, you can do it with respect, honor. Some that's, sometimes that's the most amazing witness in a difficult situation, honoring a boss. But more generally, I think for all of us, just, just think of the damage that can be done if we don't do this. How easily God's name can be dragged through the mud in an office or a campus. So, someone becomes a Christian or is known as a Christian in the office or the uni course or wherever, and they have a reputation for being a bit of a slacker. Their mind's always somewhere else. They never meet deadlines. They don't respect the boss because... Jesus is their only boss. They join in the office jokes about the boss because actually they don't respect someone who's not a Christian, who doesn't live or think God's way. You can see how it could happen, but then word gets around Ephesus or Edinburgh that Christians tend to be lazy, disrespectful workers. They only care about Jesus. They don't care about this company or our management structures. 
all too easily, my bad reputation could start to drag down God's name, the gospel's name. But flip side, positively, well, the opposite is possible, isn't it? Just, just think how we thought last week, how we care for our needy people, the most vulnerable in, in our family, can really affect our reputation in the community. Well, likewise, the word can go round the boardroom or the faculty coffee room or the deputy heads meeting to say, hey, you know that Christian guy or girl, he, he's, he or she's got this kind of weird ideas. I don't know what they're doing on a Sunday or midweek at small group, but, but you have to say, the one thing you can say is they're actually a pretty good worker. They're respectful. I know I can trust them as a boss, whether I'm, whether I'm watching or not. Did you see the invite they pinged around the email? Maybe I will go. See what it is that makes them tick. You can see the kind of effect it has. Of course, for it to have that effect, people have to know we're Christians in the office. Did you spot that? If not, people will just think, I'm a really nice guy if I'm behaving well in the office. just goes to my glory, unless people know I worship a God who tells me to, uh, to do this kind of stuff. So, verse 1, honour your boss for God's sake, even if they're outside the church family. But then flip side, those of you who have Christian bosses, verse 2 says, we're included. I have a Christian boss. Um, again, you, you can see why it might be tempting to neglect this if your boss is Christian. After all, we're brothers and sisters. We see each other on Sundays in small group. Come on, boss. We're family. Surely there must be a bit of wiggle room when it comes to kind of assigning workloads. Well, verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers or sisters. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, rather than using a Christian boss as an opportunity to get away with things, or quite the opposite, be more motivated to serve them, because they're family. If Jesus was pleased to shed his blood for them and welcome them in, well, the least I could do is work hard in service to them. So that's point one. For anyone in the workplace with a master or a boss, honor your boss for God's sake. And that means this is a good thing to chat about as we talk over coffee or in our small group. So last week, if you were here, Robin encouraged us to try and get kind of more real with each other when we chat. Sometimes it's quite hard to know how to start that. I don't know if you felt that. Maybe after last week you thought, I know I'm not supposed to speak about the snow, but, but I just, whoa, 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 how, do I, how do I begin that kind of real-life conversation? Um, well, here's a good topic to begin with. It's very simple. How is work going? That'd be a good start. How do you find it as a Christian? What's hard? Now, it's worth saying, obviously, not all of us are in paid, employed work, especially on Mother's Day. It's worth saying that. Um, doesn't mean it's any easier, the other side of the fence. Uh, so we have all sorts of, of um, work we're involved in, including caring for needy relatives, as we saw last week. But actually, lots of us do have bosses. So it's good to ask this very specific question. How do you find it respecting your boss? Why is that hard in your, in your workplace? And what truth would help you? How can I pray for you, for your godliness, for your witness? That simple question of, do people at work know you're a Christian? 
And I'll pray that something would happen so they could honor your boss for God's sake. So that kind of ties off the chapter 5 material. Timothy, teach and urge godliness across all these relationships. Older people, younger people, male, female, widows, elders, bosses. Across the board, in the real nitty-gritty, teach and urge godliness. Be as bossy as the Bible. No more, no less. In the areas the Bible addresses. That's Timothy's job. But now, for the rest of our time, we're going to think about the wolves that Paul turns to address. This is why we read Acts 20. Wolves is Paul's language for these people. Um, By wolves, I mean false teachers. This is point two. False teachers who are on the ground in this church, people who are supposed to be shepherds, but actually were wolves, leading people not to godliness and the gospel, but to lies and destruction. Paul's massively concerned about this. You'll remember this is where the letter started with false teaching, and it's where the letter ends with false teaching here in chapter 6. There are two problems with these wolves. Um, You'll see them on the handout, points 2 and 3. The first one is they're teaching differently. The second is money. Um, if If you ever want to spot a wolf in a church, firstly, look at what they're saying. Secondly, follow the money. Let's dive into verse 3. Beware anyone who teaches differently to Jesus and his apostles. That's verse 3. And you can see the contrast, can't you, with the end of verse 2. So Timothy, your job is to teach and urge the things I, the Apostle Paul, am sharing with you. You're to teach godliness, the real gospel. But actually, they are teaching something different. Again and again, through this letter... Paul's been showing us what real godliness looks like. Remember 3.15? This whole letter's written so you know how to behave. Timothy, again and again, has been told to to teach those things. Uh, So think chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant. Or chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things, this godliness that's of such value. Or chapter 5, verse 7, to the widows and their families. Command these things. Again and again, this is real godliness. But then, chapter 6, verse 3, these wolves are changing the message, teaching something different. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, well, let's look at Paul's verdict, verse 4. He doesn't pull a punch, I'll tell you that now. Here's a warning. Verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? He's puffed up with conceit, so this person is proud, and he understands nothing. This person is ignorant. That's actually a blistering assessment from Paul. But the thing is, and I've said this before, if you met one of these false teachers... I'm sure you wouldn't necessarily think they were proud or stupid. Quite the opposite, actually. If if people are being persuaded to follow them, well, these folks must have no doubt come across as humble and learned. Not arrogant, but approachable, warm. Not foolish, but erudite, learned, scholars. 
In fact, we know that's how they came across. If you flick across to chapter 6, verse 20, right at the end of the letter, just flick 6, verse 20, page 994. Listen to how the false teaching is being, being thought of. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So on the ground, these false teachers were the people in the know. They were the ones who seemed to get it, seemed to understand stuff, seemed to be able to speak for God with real authority, the learned. But actually, Paul says, proud and ignorant. Paul's apostolic eyesight sees right through them. Paul's been appointed by the Lord Jesus. He said that in chapter 1, verse 1, or 2, verse 7. He's the appointed spokesman, and he sees through this as a fake. But actually, I wonder if even we could have seen through it, should have seen through it as a fake. Let's just think about how verse 3 leads on to verse 4 again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ... Verse 4, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Just think about that for a moment, because although verse 4 sounds harsh, I think actually it's just the logical consequence of verse 3. If someone disagrees with the Lord Jesus and his words, thinks they know better than the Lord Jesus and his spirit-inspired spokesman, the apostles, what's actually going on there? Like, How proud do you actually have to be to do that? Just think about it. The eternal Son of God comes to earth, the one mediator for every kind of person. He reveals this amazing gospel message that Christ came to save sinners. He gives this precious deposit to the church once for all time. The eternal Holy Spirit inspires the Son's chosen team of spokesmen, the apostles, to record the message accurately, to have it there solidly until Christ returns. And then some pokey little human being in Ephesus comes along and thinks, do you know, I think I know better. I think I know better than the eternal Son of God and his eternal spirit. He thinks he can disagree with Christ, this wolf. And Paul says that's extraordinary conceit, puffed up with pride. And it's not just conceit, obviously it's ignorance, because he's forgotten where he stands. He's forgotten how small he is just a human being with all the limits of knowledge and perspective and time and place that that come with that. I was going to say, um, pity the preacher who stands in a pulpit and thinks they know better than Jesus Christ because they will meet him. I was going to say that. But actually... Pity isn't the right response. Just look at verse 11, which is the kind of application for Timothy of this passage. Verse 11, as for you, O man of God, not pity these people or these things, but actually run away from them. Flee these things. That's the application to Timothy. I think it's the application because Timothy could actually be tempted to join them. As we'll see, it's both the teaching, he'll be tempted to to adjust the teaching, and he'll be tempted by the money that they're tempted to chase. Um, But Paul says, flee these things. We've said lots of times through this book, please pray for us as elders, pray for us as preachers. This is another passage that should 
add some urgency to our prayers for our leaders, prayers for me. I was talking to a map, one of our trainees this week. Uh, we were talking about, from 1 Timothy, kind of taking seriously the kind of things that could ruin ministry and ruin our lives and the churches we serve. And uh, the topic of adultery came up. Um, he, was, he was talking about how serious that is. And I, I shared with him, I think, my biggest danger. Um, I think he expects it to be adultery. And actually, I said, it's cowardice, I think. It's the temptation to soften the gospel, to change the message, to do exactly what verse 3 is talking about, teaching a slightly different message from the sound words of Jesus. So please pray for me, pray for others who are teaching. Also, please pray for those amongst our church family who are involved in academic theology. I think... We have, I mean, we have lots of uh, kind of theology PhD. We have a few theology lecturers. I think it's an exceptionally hard place to live as a consistent Christian, academic theology. They're under immense pressure to change the words of Jesus or to just step sideways from them to gain more respect. Please pray for them in that. Pray that they would not end up thinking that they know better than Christ. So... These wolves, says Paul, are proud, they're ignorant. And thirdly, in his description from verses 4 and 5, they cause divisions, they cause disagreement and disunity. I'll read on. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Again, this is kind of inevitable consequences of verse 3. If you step away from the message that leads to real godliness, the gospel that produces real godliness, well, of course, then, you're deprived of the truth and slide into ungodliness. More than that, actually, if we don't agree that Jesus' words are right, well, immediately it becomes a bun fight about whose words win the day. Does that make sense? You see this so, I mean, it's so sad. You see this at a denominational level and you see it at a local church level. When, when someone or a group come in teaching something different from what Jesus and the apostles say and it causes friction, often in the rhetoric of the debate, often it's a kind of those who are sticking so rigidly to the Bible, they're the ones who are causing the problems, divisive. But actually, if we don't all agree with Jesus and his words... Well, there will always be disunity, envy, slander. It becomes a bun fight, a power play, humans fighting humans. Paul says that's another sign there are wolves amongst the sheep. So it's pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? This uh, second section of our passage. Beware anyone who teaches differently to Jesus. And Timothy, don't you become one. You'll know we're a training church here at Chalmers. We want to train apprentices. We want to train uh, church leaders in training. Uh, We want to kind of pass people through who then go on to bless other churches in all sorts of ways. One of the things I pray for my own um, ministry amongst them and for us as a church family, and I'd love you to join me to pray, that we wouldn't train false teachers, that we wouldn't send wolves out. Maybe you think, oh, that can never happen here. That can never happen. It's Chalmers. But it was happening in Ephesus, where the Apostle Paul had been one of the first teachers. 
And Timothy was on the ground, being tempted to slide as well. Beware anyone who teaches differently to Jesus. And then finally, and in some ways this, this is where Paul sees most clearly through, right through to the heart issue that's going on. Finally, point three, realize that false teaching is often about the money. Paul says the problem is not just their message, it's their money motive. The real issue with these false teachers, the reason they've strayed away from the real gospel is because they actually want to be rich. It's more comfortable, more um, lucrative doing that. I have to say, I've been really surprised, basically since December, I've been surprised and confused about this final bit of the passage because didn't we hear in chapter 4 that these were people who were kind of anti good things, like they were anti-marriage, anti-foods, they were kind of denying things of this world. Um, it turns out they, they're teaching that kind of ascetic spirituality, that kind of you must deny things to get into God's good books. The motive that lay behind it is they wanted money. How does that work? Well, it, I mean, these are two guesses. It could be that um, they told other people to do that while they collected the money. That's happened through church history numerous times. You all out there need to be really strict in your diets and stuff and make sure you pay handsomely into the coffers. That happens. Um, it may have been they thought that if you live a really strict life in some areas, God blesses you with great prosperity in other areas. We see that today with the prosperity gospel. If you have enough faith or if you give kind of extremely enough, then God will rain down showers of blessing on your workplace or on your um, bank account. It could have been either of those. But whatever it was, there was a materialistic motive in their hearts. Let's just look at um, verse 5 again. So they're, they're causing constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So for them, godliness was just a, a means towards what they really wanted, which was money, wealth, comfort, here and now. But Paul says that's completely back to front. Godliness is the precious thing. Don't kind of use godliness as a stepping stone to getting money. No, 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 no. We'll see next week. Use your money to invest in godliness because that's the precious thing, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. These verses 6 to 10 are so important for us as a church family in a rich culture that we're going to look at them more next week. I think we need decent time on them. But it is really striking how dangerous the discontent of wanting to get rich is. For all of us, I think, but especially for those involved in Christian ministry. Striking, last week in chapter 5 and verse 17, the church was told to pay those elders who rule well. But now the elders, people like Timothy or me, are told, don't you be chasing money. Does that make sense? So the church is responsible to set us aside so we can actually give time to preaching God's word. But we are not to be thinking, oh, if I just had a bit more, just had a bit more. I wonder if I went on the radio, I'd have to change my message a little bit, but I'd, I'd probably get paid or that would be a stepping stone to this. It's a sobering thought that those at the top of our denominational structures and those most seen in the media those who have the biggest, most prestigious jobs in Christendom, so seldom speak the words of Jesus. It's just immense pressure. 
Jesus' words take you down often. Paul had to go down with them. Whereas if you just shift them slightly, you can start to climb the ladder. Godliness with contentment, says Paul, is great gain. Here's a preview of next week. Contentment is great gain. I wonder if you feel content about your material situation at the moment. I think it's very hard to in the West because we face a multi-million pound advertising industry barraging us from every possible um, uh, kind of opportunity they get. And their sole aim in advertising is to create enough discontentment with my current situation that I buy whatever it is they're offering. I mean, that's just what they're designed to do. It's what all the money's going to. And when you're facing that every day, day in, day in, day out, it's very hard just to think enough's enough. I've got food, I've got clothing, I can live somewhere. Enough's enough. I don't actually need the next thing, the next gadget, the bigger car, the better, whatever it is. Um, Godliness is powerful enough to free us from that enslavement. It's a wonderful thing, actually. Godliness is valuable. It, It can free us from that discontent, from that constant chasing, from all the other things that go wrong once we start chasing money, where families get ruined and lives get ruined and morality goes out the window. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We'll think more about that next week, not least because the back half of chapter 6 gives us the positive, what to do with money if you have it in a way that will protect us, but we'll get there next week. For now, just look at the application for Timothy in verse 11, and then I'll expand it to all of us. So for Timothy, seeing this danger of wolves who change the message and chase the money, for you, O man of God, flee these things. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life. That's the message for the man of God, Timothy, this elder teacher. But actually, of course, he's a model to the rest of us. That's a message to all of us, to pursue godliness. It's top priority of life. And how does that cash out? Well, Monday morning, how are you going to treat your boss? Does anyone in the office know you're a Christian? Or, if you're not full-time work, but full-time looking after family members, I guess it starts as soon as you pick up your children. You don't have a boss, but you do have a, a way, an area where you can live out godliness. Paul's upheld the dignity of parenting and of caring for relatives in this book. In every area of life, in the nitty-gritty Godliness is valuable, so let's live it out. I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that your word is not just up in the clouds, speaking amazing truths, eternal truths, although it does give us eternal truths, eternal insight into you and your character. We praise you, it is also grounded in everyday life, in tomorrow and the rest of this week. And we pray, Father, you would help us as a church family more and more to reflect the Lord Jesus in how we treat people. Pray that in all the different situations we find ourselves in, but especially, Lord, in the workplace. Please, would you help us to be distinctive with all the pressures we face, all the 
difficulties, all the reasons why we might disrespect our bosses. Please help us to be those who, like the Lord Jesus, lived differently, counterculturally, and in a way that honoured you. And we pray as a church family, you'd help us, help us to encourage one another in that with real conversations. In Jesus' name, amen.